Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Beyond the Wire podcast. I am your host, Tim Keller. Along with me, as he always is, is my favorite co-host, Mr. Matt Disher. How are you today, sir? Hey, listen, it's a good week. We didn't talk about this last week. We didn't. Because we had our amazing guest, Stu Scheller, on with us. If you missed last week's episode, Stu Scheller made the news uh, back in August when he uh, when he challenged some of the Marine Corps leadership on some decisions that were made and has thusly become sort of a viral sensation around the military community. Stu Scheller and I know each other from high school. Uh, and so we had him on the show to just explain his side of the story and, and see how things went. But one thing we skipped over in that conversation was the fact that the Cincinnati Bengals, my Cincinnati Bengals, won the AFC championship. They did. And are and are headed to the Super Bowl this weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Matt, you have your your lighting behind you. You have that turned to orange uh to to you know help represent the greater Cincinnati area and what I, I'm imagining the mass majority, the vast majority of the United States population. I am wearing orange today, uh, you know, to 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 show my support for the Bengals. You know, uh, uh, full disclosure here, this is actually a Clemson University t-shirt, but it's the only orange uh, t-shirt I have, so I figured (laughs) I'd throw that on there. Uh, I will be rooting for the Bengals uh, come Sunday. Um, You got any festivities planned? Are you going somewhere to watch the game? We have been at the same, at my same neighbor's house for all of the playoffs games, and we've decided we have to wear the same clothes, we have to do the same thing, all the same people have to be there, we have to be in the same room, so we're going to be doing the same thing again. Perfect. Uh, the, the one thing that I have to do, I have to make sure at halftime, because this is what we, we think swayed it for the Bengals. Okay. Uh, at halftime, I have to make coffee. And mm. I put a little bit of Bailey's in that coffee as a, a festive coffee drink. Yeah, why not? That's, and I've done that consistently for all the playoffs games. And the tide turned around halftime, and then we won. And so we have to keep doing that sort of thing. I, I love it. I love it. You have to, uh, you know, many traditions, you know, uh, come alive in times like this and you have to keep them alive because it's it's what helps the team it's that butterfly effect that little bit of bailey's hitting that coffee for whatever reason joe burrows in the locker room goes it's time boys let's go right right (laughs) and that's the thing like it's it's superstition right i mean people do baseball players for example are exceptionally superstitious like there's a certain way they go up to the plate and they wear the same clothes and they wear the right hat and stuff like that I don't. I've never heard of that. I know it's with baseball. I don't know about football. Perhaps it is, but I know uh, as a as a high school uh, football player, um, depending on not not the team's performance, but depending on my performance, uh, certain pads or helmet got cleaned or didn't get cleaned. Um, you know, my helmet always got wiped down after the game. The inside yep. of the helmet. I didn't like yep. to have something very smelly on my face. Right. Uh, but the shoulder pads and the you know the leg pads, I didn't mind so much. Um, you know, it, it was, you know, if I was playing well, the pads, you know, stayed dirty and it was kind of, you know, like my Viking scent was out there. I'm letting them know. Right. 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 Mark, <laughs> I'm the man that's coming for you. And right. But that's the thing. I mean, it's, it's, I, I'm not a terribly superstitious person. I'm going to go along with all of my friends and, and my family members who are being superstitious. And they're saying we have to do this a certain way. We have to do the same things over again. Keep it alive. Um, one of the other interesting things about this is for the first Bengals playoff win, I made a video on YouTube mm-hmm. uh, and I, I put it up and I had a few hundred, uh, I think it's at a thousand, 1.5 thousand views now, which okay. is not that big compared to some of these. You see videos on YouTube. I think I mentioned this last week. Somebody like pushes a piece of bread off of a countertop and mm-hmm. it has like 6 million views. And I'm like, what's going on here? Not just somebody. If you get a kitten 
to right. push a Kiza. It's millions. Right. So I made a video. I took, uh, I asked my friends on Facebook to send me their reaction videos when the Bengals won the playoffs games. Mm -hmm. And I had random people sending me videos as well. And then I went to Facebook and I was able to view publicly shared videos as well. So I made a whole collage of these videos uh, and it's on YouTube now. And I, I found out yesterday I have like 11 or 12,000 viewers on it now, nice. which again, that's not 6 million views of a kitten pushing a piece of bread off the countertop. But it's 11,000 views on a collage of, of reactions that people, the Cincinnati Bengals fans made from bars at Miami University to people's houses locally. Uh, there was uh, a gentleman, an older gentleman who was being taken to the Super Bowl. He, I think he's in his 80s okay. and, and was crying in the video. And there's another gentleman who's talking to, I believe it's his son who passed away. And he said, I'm taking you to the Super Bowl. We're going to the Super Bowl. Oh, Amazing. So I added I added them all in there, and it's a YouTube video called "Laugh and Cry" as the as the the Bengals go to the Super Bowl. So it's kind of interesting to watch. Like it was more made for the sake of having a little bit of fun with my amateur video making capabilities, and now it's becoming I don't want to call it viral. It's not viral, but it's becoming maybe a sensation. People are viewing mm -hmm. it, liking it, and commenting on it. So it's kind of exciting. That's awesome. That is fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Um. Like I said, I I I would imagine that the majority of uh, Americans can get behind that underdog story that is the bagels right and that they'll be rooting for the uh the orange and black comes well so. and it's my understanding that when even people in los angeles because the the rams are uh, historically they were a los angeles team and they moved to st louis and mm -hmm. they came back to los angeles they're they're not really a staple of los angeles and so they're not california's are californians are big fans of the 49ers and so most of California roots for the 49ers. And then the absence of the 49ers now, of course, maybe it's the Bengals. So you see these maps that say most of the United States, I think, yeah. uh, based on social media presence and big data, big data, they are Bengals fans. Yeah, the uh, the last two times the Rams hosted the San Francisco 49ers, uh, at best, it was a 50-50 crowd uh, mm -hmm. between the two teams. Um yeah, you know, I, I don't fault the the people. Uh, the team's still relatively new to the market there in L.A. And, uh, you know, you see the same thing in Florida with sports teams. There's too, too nice of weather. There's too many other things to be doing than, uh, you know, spending four hours in a stadium and paying those prices for those tickets and the parking and the concessions and this, that, and the next. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I hope that it's a, a, a very fun game. I hope it's a close game. And uh, hopefully uh, McPherson gets to go out there and say uh, you know, to Joe Burrow as they're passing on the field, you know, we're going to Disneyland, Joe. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, you know, a, a couple of interesting things. I always like to talk about how Tom Brady, for example, when his scouting report was was very dismal. He had a mm -hmm. weak arm. He wasn't very athletic. All these go Google it. If you're listening mm -hmm. to this, go Google, go Google Tom Brady's scouting report. You'll be pretty entertained by the comments they made. Right. So he was one of the last picks in the draft back in what was it 2000 yeah something uh, like that yeah 2000. so like yeah Sick so pick yep so he was he, he wasn't one of the top picks he wasn't mm -hmm. a, a highly sought after quarterback and then he was a backup quarterback right mm -hmm. and then uh who was who was the quarterback for the Drew Bledsoe got Drew Bledsoe injured got yep. injured Tom Brady came in and the rest is history right mm -hmm. so there's there's these underdog stories if you look at this throughout sports if you look at Joe Burrow Joe Burrow went to Ohio State University mm -hmm. and was basically I hate using this term but he was basically a bench warmer he didn't he didn't really play then he went to LSU and was a superstar came to the Bengals his first year in true Bengals fashion gets his leg broken gets hurt and then we're like oh great we got this great new quarterback and now he's going to get hurt 
bearing in mind many years ago, this happened to Carson Palmer. Mm-hmm. Carson Palmer was like the next big thing to come to the Bengals. And in that first playoffs game, got his leg, his knee broken. And, and the then it was against the Steelers and it was out the window. And, yep. and, and this is what fueled the rivalry between the Bengals fans and the Steelers fans. Whenever we would get together, it'd be a big fight. Although the Pittsburgh Steelers beat us for many years to come. Um, so this is all, you know, all this, these things about Joe Burrow. And it kind of reminds me of the, the, the Tom Brady story here too. I'm just hopeful that you get this guy in here. He he's, he's basically had a, a bit of a career at LSU and then his NFL career was, was marred by a broken leg. And now he's back and he's at the Super Bowl for his first full NFL season. season yeah. He's not a rookie quote unquote anymore, but he's effectively a rookie. This is his first real season, mm-hmm. uh, full season playing in the NFL. Evan McPherson, by the way, is supposed to be a college senior. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and he's out here hot shotting around, not missing anything. Barely old enough to drink. Knock on wood, right? Yeah. But he's not even supposed to be in the NFL yet, and there yeah. he is. So yeah. uh, truly, I love these stories. We use the, the word underdog, or as Alexa would say, if I asked Alexa who's going to win the Super Under Bowl, cat. She, yeah. she says it's the undercats, the Bengals. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It's just kind of an interesting... It's good to see the Bengals back on the map. I know yeah. this podcast is not designed around sports, but man, this this right. city's on fire right now. Yeah, you got you got somebody from the local market on the podcast, so uh, and and I'll be rooting for them as well. Um, so yeah, it's it's something to talk about. And real quick, since we're you know kind of delving into sports a little bit, I do have the uh, the Olympic medal count pulled up. Uh, congratulations to Germany so far; they are leading the gold medal count with uh, five gold medals. Norway and Austria. Uh, 10 total medals are leading that race. Uh, the U.S. is down at 10, uh, 10th overall with only one gold, but we have seven total medals. So uh, we're finding success over there in Beijing. So let's keep it up. Go Team USA. I, I, I took a break to eat a sandwich a little while back, and I uh, got on my TV, and I was looking at YouTube, and one of the mm-hmm. videos that it recommended was that I go take a look at the some ugly crashes from the downhill skiing. Oof. And everybody keeps crashing in this one spot. Thankfully, nobody's really seriously hurt. But man, it looks like they're doing 100 miles an hour and they run into this orange plastic wall. Everybody in the same spot. And then the rescue guys come skiing down to help them. But it's uh, it's pretty brutal. Yeah, uh, there are a handful of events, especially in the Winter Olympics, that I just get. No, not for me. The, the, like the ski jump. I don't want to be everyone that long. <laughs> that's right. Uh... No. That's um, in my head. There's about a million things that can go wrong here. So Right. Uh, the and, downhill skiing, uh, you know, going 60, 70 miles an hour down the down a slope. It's not not for me. Yeah, you get you get one shot to get that right. Yeah, and, and I'm sure they've all crashed before. Yeah. But curling's more shot. my speed. <laughs> <laughs> Another one, like not to not to take anything away from that, but I I didn't know until ten years ago that that was an actual thing. I, mm-hmm. I guess I never paid attention, and then I questioned, like, is this a sport? And I guess it's a sport, but. There's that same the same debate with like golf. If you can do it with a beer, is it really a sport? Uh, right. It's a leisure activity. Right. I <laughs> so, guess it's a good, good times. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, let's go team USA. Uh, so let's get let's get in some news. Um, you know, we didn't cover any news last week because we had the guest. And like Matt said, if you didn't listen to that episode, go find it. It's a fantastic episode. Uh, Stu Scheller, uh, since about August of last year, has has been in the headlines. He's he's definitely got a story to tell. So go out there and check that out. Uh, but the first article we have pulled up, a black soldier received Medal of Honor more than 50 years after calling artillery on his own position. Um, this is actually a story I had heard. I didn't know um, about the awards, you know, taking so long, things of like that nature. Uh, but I had heard this story before. Uh, Lieutenant John R. Fox 
the day after Christmas of 1944, part of the 92nd Infantry Division, uh, was in Italy fighting Nazis. And as a Nazi battalion moved in on this small Italian city that they were trying to hold down, uh, he continued to call for artillery fire to give his people a chance to retreat safely. And until the Nazi position continued to move closer and closer, he then had to call the artillery strike on himself. Um, he was famously quoting, uh, quoted as saying, give them hell. Um, you know, this is absolutely the ultimate sacrifice by an individual. Um, you know, this article describes, you know, the Buffalo soldiers, they being the only uh, all black battalion of, of soldiers over there fighting in Europe during uh, World War II. Uh, they were supporting a brand new battalion of, uh, of the army that was over there for the first time. And at 29 years old, Lieutenant Fox uh, gave up his life you know, defending his people and uh, trying to defeat the enemy. Um, I think it was 1982, the article yep. says, is when yep. he was uh, when he was awarded uh, the Distinguished Cross. I, I, I missed my spot here in the article, um, but it wasn't until President Clinton was in office um, that they asked for some outside sources to go back and look at, um, you know, how these awards were presented or given out or even... Um, you know, uh, sent in to the Department of Justice. Um, and it looks like uh, now, uh, 50 years after his sacrifice under the uh, Clinton regime, that this gentleman was finally awarded the medal that he so deserved. Yeah, I I, I wonder, yeah, he won, you're right. He won the Distinguished Cross, yeah. uh, Service Cross in 1982. I, I do wonder, because there was a, a note here that up until that point, there had been, no African-American soldiers. Or I, yeah, of, I did not know that for sure. Awarded. Yeah. And so I, I wonder how many stories like this got lost in the mix. And, mm -hmm. and if you know the process, I'm going to oversimplify this, but you are put in for uh, an award of some sort by your peers and your commanding officer and things like that. People put in a note and say, this is what happened. And based on how that testimony goes, it gets brought up and, and reviewed through the chain. And then they ask for other witnesses and things like that. And eventually, and as I mentioned, I'm oversimplifying this, but eventually what happens if you have enough witnesses that say, yes, this is absolutely what happened. This person put themselves at great risk, no regard for their own safety. That's when the difference between a, uh, a valor medal, a regular valor medal, a bronze star with valor or a, uh, a silver star or in the case of Navy and Marine Corps, the Navy cross or a medal of honor happens. All mm -hmm. those things can get upgraded and awarded and upgrades happen all the time. You get people who have a silver star for valor. And then later on, it gets upgraded to a medal of honor. Mm -hmm. I wonder how many of these stories just never simply got told. They're just mm -hmm. not recorded. Uh, and it's, and it's because they were, they were members of these groups that, um, you know, it, it, it talks about, there was, Although the article says, although there was no direct evidence of discrimination, it found that systemic, systemic racism uh, permeated the culture of the War Department back then until probably the 80s or 90s. Yeah. Uh, 1996 is when uh, North Carolina Shaw University was asked to investigate the Army's nominations and award processes uh, of that time. Um, at, in that same year, 1996, Shaw recommended that 10 black soldiers be considered to receive the Medal of Honor. Um, and then the next year, 1997, uh, President Clinton presented the Lieutenant Fox's 
medal of honor to his widow Arlene. So, uh, you know, it, it, it really, it, it stinks that it has to be that long. Um, right. and that things of that nature held back these people from being recognized right. for their sacrifices and the things that they did. Here's the thing about these. I, I love these stories. Not that I like the sacrifice at all. Mm. Of course, people died during these conflicts and, and people have to live with this for the rest of their lives, as we talk about all the time. But I I love the stories of heroism because I can imagine this. And, and there are a handful. I think Netflix did a, a series a few years ago called Medal of Honor. You can go in there and it it, mm. yeah. it dramatizes the retelling of some of these stories. And then there's the movie The Outpost right now, which is... Mm. Uh, a story of uh, where, where two soldiers won the Medal of Honor in Afghanistan at Cop Keating, uh, mm -hmm. which was a huge battle where the Taliban basically just ran in and tried to take over the, the uh, outpost. But you you see these stories, you hear these stories, and, and we've talked to some people who we, we had Bart Cole on the show with us uh, a number of times, a number of months back. Bart Cole won a, a Bronze Star for Valor. And, and in some cases, these guys just run into the fray, right? They mm -hmm. just know they're like, I'm stuck here. I either have to fight my way out or they almost become satisfied with the idea that maybe they're not going to make it out. Hmm. And if you've ever read the Dakota Meyer Medal of Honor story, Dakota Meyer was that Marine that won the Medal of Honor for uh, other actions in Afghanistan. He said it wasn't a question of if I was going to die. It was I knew I was going to die. It was just when mm -hmm. he kept running back in to like pull people out and try to help people. And he was he ended up fighting a, a, another combatant on the ground hand to hand. He knew he wasn't going to get out of there. He knew that it was going to go awry. And it sounds like this same gentleman in World War II is probably thinking the same thing, you know, with his statement, give him hell. He's calling in artillery on himself, on his own unit. Uh, Lieutenant Fox was probably with the, the satisfaction of knowing that one way or the other, he's not making it out of there. So we might as well kill as many. So I'm taking as, as many out. as I can. Yep. Yeah. And I, and I, you know, again, I've, I'm fortunate I've never been in that position. I know people who have. But I, I guarantee that that's when you're being overrun by the enemy, maybe better to go out that way than to have some guy jump in your hole and bayonet you or be, kept, be taken prisoner, even worse, mm -hmm. right? So that's why these stories resonate with me so much. I, I, can't, I can't help but get goosebumps when I read them. These Absolutely. are true heroes. These are people that just sacrificed everything and in some cases came out of it okay, in many cases did not. But this is one of those stories where he gave it all, right? And mm -hmm. he was killed in his own barrage. He was awarded posthumously 50 years later. Um, but his name lives on now, and hopefully he gets a little bit more recognition even posthumously. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I'd like to think that with the medical advances is why we're starting to see uh, less of these awards have to be awarded posthumously. Uh, but, yeah, in this case, there was no if ands or buts he's he's calling in heavy artillery fire on his exact position he knew exactly what he was doing right but he made a choice that you know if i'm going to go out i'm going to go out of my own doing and my you know on my own accord and i'm going to take as many of these uh you know enemies along for the ride as possible and, right and, you know if it was not for him uh you know there, there's a chance that the vast majority of his unit does not make it you know back to safety upon retreat and uh, a few a few days later, January 1st, uh, his unit was able to come back in and retake that town away from the Nazis and push them to northern Italy. So uh, it was a, a turning point in the Italian mission. So right. Lieutenant Fox, uh, you know, it sucks. You had to wait 50 years. Hopefully those sort of things are behind us as a country and as a nation. And 
uh, you know, things like that uh, with racism are behind us when it comes to, uh, you know, awarding the people that deserve the awards. I certainly hope so. Yep. Um, you know, I wanted to focus uh, the next two articles were kind of veteran job based. Uh, the first one here, it's four steps veterans can take if they suddenly lose a job. Uh, right now, with the job market being the way it is, uh, this probably isn't that hot of a topic, but uh, a little more than a year ago, uh, with the downturn in COVID and the shutdowns, uh, you could have had people, uh, you know, been given that pink slip or, hey, we're just not going to be able to bring as many people back, uh, you know, going forward. But when you're in the military, it's very easy. We talk about this, uh, you know, all the time. You're there as long as you're not doing something to get yourself booted out of the military. It's very dependable. You know, you show up, you do your daily tasks every two weeks. That paycheck's going to hit your bank account. No questions asked. Uh, once you separate, though, all that kind of all that stuff you kind of take for granted is gone. Uh, you know, that that little warm blanket that is that security is now taken away from you. Uh, so unless you're working under sort of some sort of contract, uh, you know, military work, uh, you know, government work, things like that, where you, you got a contract that, you know, hey, for the next six months, as long as I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, uh, these paychecks are going to keep coming rolling in. Uh, when you find yourself in the civilian sector at any given time for multitude of reasons, that job could be taken away. Yeah. When, when the government sh shifts roles and when the government changes sizes, it doesn't happen as fast or as abrupt mm. as companies. You got to remember this. And I have to explain this to a lot of people who leave the military that, that, that might not have a corporate experience. Companies and businesses are in business to make money. Mm -hmm. If they, if their revenues are slowing or, the economy is slowing. They have to make adjustments to keep themselves profitable. At the end of the day, you're keeping people employed and you're paying shareholders. And the people who have invested the most financial capital into that organization are typically the ones who would like to reap the benefits. It's it's like any private investment or private equity or, or publicly traded company. If the company is not profitable, it's not a business. It's going to be shut down. Uh, the military and the government Again, they change sizes, but it, it doesn't the downsizes don't often happen overnight in companies. It can. And that's not to scare anybody, but it's you know, there's there's risk and there's reward. Right. So yeah. with growth, if you're in sales or you're in a revenue generating type of position with growth, you can make a ton of money. You can make a lot of money very quickly. You can, you can have a really good career and get a lot of really good opportunities, whereas in some government jobs, not to take anything away from them. You're not always able to maybe move as fast as a business moves, right? So uh, so all of this to say, back to Tim's point, sometimes these things shift on a dime and then you find yourself looking for the next role. Well, uh, back in 2008, we had the, uh, the downturn in the economy there. I know a bunch of people lost their jobs. Um, personally, uh, I was in a role that was getting um, removed from the company. They had to, they had to make some financial decisions uh, with the company I was working for at that time. Uh, luckily for me, the company liked me as an employee and actually had a, a plan for me going forward. Um, and they actually created the role a little bit ahead of time that they wanted to put me in and, and just threw me in the new role and said, Hey, we're getting rid of this current role you're in and we'd, we'd hate to see you go. So here we're going to, we're going to move you in fast. Mm -hmm. uh, but this article, the four points or the four steps that this article lists is number one, get your resume ready. Uh, it all begins with your resume. The first thing to do is review the resume you use to get your old job, because if it was good enough to get that one, it'll probably be good enough to get another, but you just want to go back over it, comb over it for typos, spelling errors, casuals, mistakes, 
as well as updating the timeline in your career. Uh, you know, you have that current job that you're now uh, potentially losing. Maybe that's not on the resume. Maybe over the past few years, you've uh, gone and got a degree. You've got new certificates that are not on that resume. You want to get all those new things attached to that resume uh, as you start seeking new jobs. Number two, and Matt, I call this the uh, the Matt step. It is activate your network. Uh, Matt's, if you don't know, if you haven't listened before, Matt's uh, tips for anybody that is job seeking or even when they're not job seeking necessarily is network, network, and guess what? Network. So okay. number two here is activate your network. Uh, unless you are working for a company that famously tanked like Enron, uh, chances are that no one in your network knows that you're looking for a job. So get out there and start to network. Let people know that you are available for employment. Uh, you know, let them know the skills, let them know what you're looking for. There are people that you may have worked with in the past that have moved on and may still be in a very similar field, might be able to point you in the right directions. Former coworkers, uh, former people you served with in the military can point you in the right directions and go out there and network. Matt, you look like you had something to say to this one. Yeah, I, I well, we, we didn't have these sort of resources back when, yeah. when we got out of the Marine Corps. I, I did not have LinkedIn. There was no such thing as using a professional network other than getting into a meeting, if you were aware of it, and sitting down and rubbing elbows with people and going to luncheons and job fairs and things like that. So I see this a lot on social media these days, and it's not exclusive to veterans. By the way, these tips are not exclusive to veterans. These are good for anybody. I always say this, what works for the military and veterans works for everybody. I... I see an increasing number of people in, in neighborhood community Facebook pages, for example, saying or asking, hey, who's hiring? Mm -hmm. And the, the typical smart aleck response by everybody is everybody's hiring. Right. Yeah. But I, I see people saying, well, not everybody's hiring. They have for, they have they have uh, help wanted signs in the windows, but they're not actually interviewing. And that's because the managers are, are probably the hiring managers are probably in there doing the work and they don't have time to interview, which is a that's a cyclic problem in and of itself. You know, yes, you're, it's the, the, the snake eating its own tail, so to speak. But what happens when you when your network knows that you are a valuable asset is that you don't have to go blindly knocking on doors mm -hmm. to try to get things going. And I, I always say this, and I've, I've done this in my own career. I try to build my own brand. I try to build my unique brand of, of what I do as a professional. And, and that way I have this, this large network of people. If ever I have to make a change, God forbid, I enjoy what I do uh, wholly. It, I, I am fulfilled in it. Uh, but if ever I have to make a change or something changes, I know that I can lean on other people and I can get out there and find another opportunity or something along those lines. Uh, but when you are kind of keeping your head down and staying in your lane, so to speak, and not really generating a network and not really going after pursuing that network, you're going to have a hard time starting from scratch if one day the door shuts on you, right? Mm -hmm. And and that is, for many people, I would say, many people can see the writing on the wall, adjust to that writing on the wall. The number one point that Tim made before, just number one in this list was, write your resume. Maybe already have your resume warmed up. Maybe have it already warmed up, even if you're like, hey, I'm not looking for a job anyway. You just never know when you might need to put that thing together and put it mm -hmm. out to your network. So bear that in mind. And, and I would argue also that maybe networking should be number one instead of resume. Uh, networking first, then maybe build your resume. Well, the networking is going to get you uh, at least pointing in the right direction, possibly, uh, you know, get the people that matter that are also looking to hire, um, looking at you, and they're going to then come asking for that resume. And, you know, if it wasn't for the networking, those, those individuals may have never found you. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, James Lindsay, thank you for commenting. If you're not networking, you're not working. Very, very true. 
number three on the list is dust off those interview skills. Um, I know that every, you know, 10, 12 years-ish, it seems like the the corporate interview style or questioning uh, kind of changes and morphs and, 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 you know, somebody out there came up with a study that says, hey, these are the type of questions we need to be asking now. Uh, so maybe it's been that long since you've interviewed last and, you know, it's going to be a whole new style of interview, but it's never too soon to get reacquainted with the essential job searching skill for the uh, for a worker who's been out of the job search for a while, coming up with thoughtful answers about their goals, their futures and their strengths may take a little rehearsal. Again, you can have uh, your significant other, get a coworker, a friend, uh, somebody kind of run you through a mock interview a few times, get you prepared, have you start thinking along those lines, you know, if I'm presented with this style of question, how would I answer this? Uh, if you are able to kind of brainstorm a little bit beforehand, once those questions are presented to you in the actual real deal interview, things are going to come off sincere, uh, you know, honest and truthful. So I talk to a lot of candidates and I tell them to apply for jobs that they don't want, maybe apply for jobs for which they're overqualified. And they're like, well, I don't really want that job, Matt. Why would I apply to that job? Or why would I apply to run the, the hamburger joint down the street when I have a PMP. Great question. What's going to happen is you're going to field an interview. You're going to have to talk about yourself and your accomplishments. And bearing in mind, an interview is not a commitment to do anything. An interview is a conversation about a job. They're exploring you. You're exploring them. They're you're test driving each other, right? When you go to a car dealership, if you jump into a, I almost said jump into a Pontiac and then I realized they stopped making Pontiacs yeah, yeah. like 12 years ago. You jump into a, a Toyota and you're like, man, you know what? I don't want this Toyota Camry. I want to go with something. I want to go to the Toyota 4Runner. You're not bought into buying the thing that you just test drove, right? Mm -hmm. The same thing works for an interview. I can't tell you how important this is. Up, up with the networking piece, I would even put this above the resume piece as well. Although the resume will get you to the interview. Get good at talking about the things you've done. Not the things we've done, the things I've done. And I say that because a lot of people in the military are like, well, we did this and my team yeah. did this and my team did that. Companies aren't hiring your team. They're hiring you. So you can talk about the things that you contributed to that team, but get comfortable with talking about your accomplishments, dollar amounts, numbers. Those are things that it's anecdotal bullets on a resume are great, but people want to know what results you produce. They don't want to just know what you were working on and never produced a, a, of out of anything. So Bear that in mind, get your interview skills primed by having conversations with people. And that's where your network can help you. You can have conversations. I have conversations with people all day long and I just ask them what they do now and what they want to do. And it's as simple as that. It's not, it's not really a formal interview, but I am effectively interviewing them and asking them questions about where they'd like to end up. And it forces them to maybe have to explain to me where they've been and what they want to do from this point forward, which helps me to draw a picture of what this person might be like on my team. I don't know if I lost you or you lost me, but we, I don't know. So, so back into the list, number four is fine contract employment. This is, uh, you know, if, if you think that maybe this job search is going to take a little bit longer than you're going to be comfortable with, there are contract employment opportunities out there. You know, that for the next six months, you have this, uh, this goal, this task, you know, this job essentially, uh, many of them can potentially lead to like a full-time position. Some of them are strictly, Hey, we need you for six, eight, 10 months after this, uh, this project's over. Uh, you know, maybe we'll have something else, another project, but 
Uh, some of them are just that. It is a contract. You sign it. Uh, you do this task for a sum of money. And once it's over, that employment is over. But it gives you that time. It gives you that uh, that little umbrella uh, to keep you out of the rain, keep you out of the storm, and uh, allow you to move on to the next thing. And, and the reason why this one's listed here is what, what typically happens in a volatile work environment. Uh, so pre or post recession 10, mm -hmm. 11, 12 years ago now, uh, pre or post COVID companies are looking at the investments they make in people, right? And if, if I am a business owner, I always put this into people's laps. If you own a business and you have a hundred thousand dollars to run your business and pay people, let's assume for a second, you're paying people $20,000. So a hundred thousand dollars goes a long way in my scenario. Let's assume that you have $20,000 to pay each person, but you're like, man, I'm now at my hundred thousand dollar a year limit. I can't pay anybody else or I only have $10,000 left, but I need another employee, I can go out and get a contract employee. I can go pay a person to come work for me maybe during peak season for mm -hmm. three months, or maybe while I'm rebuilding something, uh, or maybe one of my clients has not, my clients has, has not uh, committed to a large long-term contract, mm -hmm. but it's a short contract. So what they're looking for in some cases, what companies, what big companies are looking for in a lot of cases is, I need help during peak season. I need somebody to come work retail during Christmas time, right? That's effectively a contract. They won't tell you that for a holiday season job. They just mm -hmm. call it a, a holiday season. Uh, but a lot of companies, there are a lot of companies out there that do contractual work uh, contracts. And, and that's mm -hmm. what it is. We're hiring a recruiter for six months for a six month contract. They might keep you for forever after that. They might try to hire you full time if the contract continues to go and the business continues to need you or you become a really good asset. This is uh, this happened to my sister many years ago. She came on as a as a temp, as a contract temp, and then she ended up getting hired by one of the largest companies in the world. Uh, after proving her value for about seven or eight months, they said, "We don't want to lose you as a temp. We'll just hire you on full time into awesome. a really well paying job." So that's why that there that's why there are these contract employment opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the next article we have talking about uh, veteran employment is how veterans can explain why they left their first post-military job. Now, Matt, you've brought this uh, this up before, but the statistic reads that within the first year of a veteran uh, finding civilian employment, 50% of those individuals leave that job. If you go out to two years, that number jumps up to 65%. Uh, companies love to hire veterans, Matt. It's what you do for a living, um, especially looking for their first post-military job. Veterans bring things like leadership, the ability to work independently and part of the team. And, uh, you know, they host a, a larger set of skills that most individuals coming fresh out of college do not possess. Mm -hmm. um, but for many companies, you know, that number, that 50 percent, hey, in, in another year, am I, I going to be sitting down having these same interviews for the same position because, you know, Matt or Tim left this position? Right. Um, so ways you can possibly explain to that next potential employer of why you left that job, number one is burnout. Uh, it's natural for a newly separated veteran to arrive at their first job and want to leave their mark, make their boss happy, or set a standard for excellence uh, just the way they did in the military. Many will accomplish this by taking on a lot of work and working all the time. This inevitably will lead to that burnout. Uh, you know, we need to try to work better on the work-life balance. You can explain this in, you know, in the interview or in the pre-screening saying, hey, you know, I took too much on that's that's of my doing. Uh, you know, let's talk about this new company's work-life balance. You know, you present yourself as, hey, I'm a go-getter, 
but I also appreciate and value my time as well. Uh, and you're looking for your values to match your new company's values, hopefully. Yeah. I, I would just be careful with this one. If somebody asks you this in an interview, like, hey, why'd you leave this first job? And you're like, oh, I was burned out. That's going to, as a hiring manager, it's going to be a really big yellow or red flag for me. Mm -hmm. Like, well, I mean, everybody experiences burnout. Here's the funny thing. We don't want to talk about it during an interview because what it sounds like is, especially if we're talking about the statistical first job of somebody leaving the armed forces, that's when I say statistical, I mean, it's the obligatory first job everybody had out of the military, mm -hmm. right? You probably didn't stay there long enough to be burned out. You probably left for another reason, which we'll talk about here in a second. I can give a couple additional tips that might not be listed here, and I'll cite some statistics here in a minute. But avoid that burnout piece. Potentially talk about talk about the, hey, there wasn't a work-life balance. That's not really burnout. That's not considered burnout. If you're simply not able to coach Little Billy's baseball team because your job has you working weekends and holidays and nights and it's crazy and you just got off six deployments prior to leaving the military – that's not burnout. That's simply work-life balance. It's not It's not a good fit for your cultural needs, right? So bear that in mind. Uh, in any interview, you probably don't want to tell a hiring manager that you just got burned out and now you're looking for something else because what's, what's to keep you from getting burned out here when we put you to work? Yeah, absolutely. Number two is ethical conflicts. Companies and workplaces like people have their own personalities and moods. Veterans will find that most of the companies they work for throughout their careers have strict rules and guidelines for behavior and the way they do business. You might find a job made you question your own ethics or put you in an uncomfortable, uncomfortable position. This is a perfectly good reason to leave a job, but bad-mouthing a former employer during an interview is never a good idea. Instead, maybe uh, we, we just talked about the work-life balance. Maybe during the interview, highlighting the fact that you uh, appreciate uh, this new company's um, you know, uh, dedication to work-life balance. You appreciate the new uh, the new company's uh, standards or reputation. Talk up the new company that you're interviewing mm -hmm. for. Try to stay away from bad-mouthing the, the former employer. Uh, again, it's going to just raise up some of those flags Matt kind of talked about earlier. Yeah, something that happens with, with all, almost all hiring managers is they will, they will tend to be skeptical of the person that they're interviewing unless they went out and found that person on their own. Like if I know you by your reputation, I'm not going to be skeptical of you. But if you're coming in off the street and you're applying to a job and you come in and they're like, hey, I'm switching jobs because I'm burned out and because this company has poor ethics and stuff like that, I'm mm. immediately going to be like, wow, you're sitting here telling me that all these things are wrong except for you. And I get, listen, yeah. I've been, I've been there before. I've common I've denominator, left, right? I've left organizations because the culture was toxic. I've left organizations because I was burned out. I've, mm. I've done all of these things. The difference is, and I know we, <laughs> here's the, 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 if I'm talking to my, my 10 year old son, I'm always like, Hey, just be honest. Right. The problem is that when you, to Tim's point, when you come in and you're the common denominator of all these reasons why you're leaving, you want to be sure that you're you're helping somebody view that in a positive light. Like, what's the real reason you're leaving? And is it because the culture is toxic? I mean, that's a fair answer to say, mm -hmm. hey, the culture is toxic. And uh, it's my understanding that maybe the, the company was doing some unethical things, and I'm, I'm not down with that. Uh, and I'd like to do something with a more reputable organization. Uh, I wouldn't go into the interview and say, hey, they're doing illegal things, because then the, the question would be, well, why why didn't you blow the whistle on them? You know what I mean? And that's you get yourself into a sticky situation here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, number three is wanting more compensation. And you know, the reality is, is 
you know, even Jeff Bezos wants more compensation. Um, there's nothing wrong with more, wanting more money, more benefits, and more, more responsibility. This one's pretty easy to answer in the interview. Hey, you know, Tim, why did you leave that job? Uh, for the for the amount of hours, the work I was putting in, the skills I have, I feel I was being undercompensated. I'm looking for more money. I'm looking for more challenges. I'd love to. I'd like to face these challenges with your company. I'd love more responsibilities, and I'd like to grow personally and professionally. This is back to the previous article where we talked about their resume. And I, mm -hmm. I mentioned put numbers and dollar amounts and things that you've generated on that resume. This is where that conversation comes in. If I want more compensation, I can't just come into an interview and say, <laughs> I want to be paid more to do the same job that I was doing over there. Companies going to be like, that's not how companies work. That's, that is not how payroll works, right? So a company pays you based on either your market value of what you're producing, what other people in your same type of job get paid. So if you're coming in and shoveling sidewalks and people are paying 20 bucks an hour to shovel sidewalks, you're going to make an according amount of money. If you come in and you're a salesperson and you're like, I've generated $20 million in sales uh, in this industry and in my previous company and my existing company, and I aim to take 10% of that, I would like that amount. But my current company is, I generated 20 million and I'm only getting you know 1% of that. And I'd like to make more than that fair conversation because what's going to happen is that company might the, the the new company for which you're interviewing they might look at you and say wow you did 20 million in sales in this industry and we're selling a similar widget here mm -hmm. with the right resources you might be able to sell 40 million with us or 30 million with us and we're willing to pay you that 10% you want so that's exactly how those those conversations work we talk sports on here a lot. This is how uh, sports contracts work too. Like there's an X, X amount that's guaranteed, but then they get X amount of bonuses on top of that for the amount of catches or touchdowns or games. Yeah. Right. So it is, it's, you get paid based on production. Don't ever go into an interview and say, Hey, I need to make another $50,000 a year and have no stats to back it up. Yeah. Matt, you brought up, uh, you know, sales. So revenue is, is a great statistic. It's easy to track. Mm -hmm. uh, let's say you're in uh, HR, um, you know, you can highlight some of the employees, the, the rock stars you've brought into the company. Uh, you know, if you're in, in safety, let's say, you know, talk about that two year streak. You know, you the company had under your watch of, of no injuries, no downtime. Um, right. You know, Matt, you brought up shoveling snow. So if, if I shovel one sidewalk an hour for twenty dollars an hour and Matt's able to do two plus then salt the sidewalks. Why can't Matt ask for that twenty two dollars? You know, be able to, you know, show some sort of number or statistic that proves that your work ethic and, and the amount of, of you know, revenue you're going to generate is worth that extra, you know, compensation. It's, it's efficiency. And, and, you know, back to my analogy of if you're the business owner and, and you have a hundred thousand dollars in your pocket and you have to hire X number of people with that money to then generate more business so you can earn 200, 300, 400, think of it in those terms. Mm -hmm. Anytime you sit down for an interview, why does this hiring manager or this business owner, why do they want to bring me on? It's, it's so that I can do something for their business that allows them to make more money or be more productive or be more efficient. It's not so they can just get the same thing that they had before. Mm -hmm. That's where, you know, becoming the obvious choice comes in, being able to sell yourself. All of the tips we're talking about in all these articles are how you get to that point. You can't show up with a resume smud, smothered in, in dirt and mud and then be like, I have no sites to, uh, stats to cite. I didn't generate any money. I can't really explain to you how I did my old job. The culture is toxic. My boss was mean. And I want to come work here for you. I'm going to laugh you out the door. Uh, any hiring manager is going to laugh you out the door. And, and then if you sit down with executive leadership, 
they're not even going to, you're not even going to get to that point. They're not going to want to hear it. They want, they want somebody who's going to come in and be again, the obvious choice. They don't want to have to think about it. They want you to uh, put your best foot forward right off the bat and have a great first impression. Absolutely. Uh, let's move into some uh, political talk a little bit here. Um, the next two articles kind of, kind of deal with this a little bit, but Slovakia long lawmakers approved defense military treaty with the U S uh, so essentially what has happened, the uh, defense cooperation agreement passed with a vote of 79 to 60 in the Slovakia legislature, uh, you know, pretty close vote there. It seemed to be split, but this essentially is now a, an agreement that for the next 10 years, the U.S. military will use two Slovak Air Force bases um, and they will receive $100 million in cash from the U.S. to modernize both of these Air Force bases. Um, with what's going on over in the Ukraine uh, right now with the, uh, you know, the positioning and, and chest puffing of multiple nations and NATO and, you know, everybody else involved. Uh, timing wise, I think this is a little rough. It's, it's going to add a little fuel to the fire, I would imagine. Um, I, I don't I, I don't really know what to say about this. I wish I wish this wasn't the case. Uh, these days, I, you know, the next article is going to talk about something else that I'm also going to say timing wise. This is just terrible. I wish we didn't have to do these sort of things. Uh, if Russia were to decide they are going to invade Ukraine uh, strategically, I understand the necessity for this. Um, but I think that with, you know, the burning flames, the burning embers there, you don't want to take that can of gasoline and throw it in that same direction. It's right. not it's not good. It's not great timing. I, I feel like there's a couple of things going on here. One, we've we've been training with the Slovakian military for mm -hmm. uh, for a while now, so it's uh, the relationship there is nothing new. The agreement is probably just a uh, it, it's more of a like a hey look what we did versus yeah. we're doing anything new. Uh, but I I do agree with you. That's how these things appear. That's mm -hmm. that's how they make diplomatic decisions on what what's going on in the world. Um, there are some critics to this that say this challenges. Uh, Slovakia's uh, uh, sovereignty, sovereignty. Yeah. yeah, and and so it's you know it's going to be that interesting. There are it's it's funny like we talk about politics and partisanship in the United States. It happens everywhere. Mm -hmm. It's happening there too. The two parties are now fighting over this this conversation. It's actually four, it's a it's a four party uh, okay. over there. Right. So so you have this uh, you have the four parties fighting over mm -hmm. what should we do or what should we not do. Here, I think this is what's happening at the end of the day. I think that the United States and its allies are 99% certain that if they put enough resources in that area or make it very clear that this invasion will not work out very well, that perhaps Russia will kind of back down. That creates a unique problem for Russia because the personality that we see, at least on the media of, of uh, Vladimir Putin, is that he's kind of a tough dude. You know, every once in a while you see a video of him like picking up a puppy and being nice. Mm -hmm. And people are like, oh, you know, look at this guy. Like, but the, the persona that we see is this dude's tough and he's going to have his way. Right. And I think that that is the nationalism of 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 Russia as well. Mm -hmm. People are like, we are this strong country and they've had some challenges. Right. I mean, the uh, now 30 years ago, 30 some odd, 32 years ago, the Soviet Union collapsed. And that caused a lot of these countries like Slovakia and a handful of others, the Ukraine, to break off from the Soviet Union and become their own sovereign nations. So that's not that long ago in the history of things, right? There's there's still some jockeying for who's 
in control and who's influencing these countries, which is exactly what's happening here. Yes. And, and so we are and always have been the enemy of Russia and vice versa. Like we, we probably could be friends, but this goes back to you know, World War II and beyond. We're not friends. We're, we're Cold War enemies, right? We're, we're like stiff opponents. It's like the Bengals and the Steelers a handful of years ago. Mm-hmm. Like we're, we're playing in the same Olympics together, but we don't like each other. It, I was going to bring it back to sports myself. It's like, uh, you know, the big bad, uh, you know, home run hitter versus the, you know, the, the pitching ace. It's who's going to blink first. Is that pitcher going to hang the curveball in the strike zone or is that batter going to go chasing the slider out of the strike zone? Right. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're jockeying and positioning themselves accordingly. And I would like to think that uh, with enough jockeying and positioning, cooler heads will hopefully prevail in this. Um, I think it does no good for anybody other than I would say China, that if America and, and Russia got into it, it's going to be a, a huge money dump for both of those countries. Oh. It's casualties and China yeah. can sit back on the sidelines and just keep stacking up money um, as they probably sent out loan offers to both of the countries and say, Hey, right. you need money funding the war, right? Come in more debt to us. Yeah. Yeah, aside from them, nobody wins here, right? Yeah, especially uh, it's, not it's, the Ukraine. Yeah, it's not going to be great for anybody involved. Uh, those not involved, if they play it right, um, there's potential for it to be good for them. But um, this is uh, this whole conversation, though the, the the whole thing that's going on with the Ukraine and Russia and the United States right now is one of the big reasons they say they say. When I say they say, I mean this is what I'm seeing on the news. They say yeah. it's because Russia is saying that it doesn't want all these all its neighbors to join NATO. Yeah. Uh, but if you look at this, the U.S. has an agreement with 23 other other NATO members there in the area, including Poland and Hungary, uh, two other countries that that neighbor the Ukraine on the eastern flank of the alliance. They're all joining NATO or they're positioned to join NATO. Uh, that's why I say it's a lot of posturing right now. It's a lot of like who has the most resources and who's going to win out of this? Because nobody again, nobody wins. And yeah. we discussed this in a previous in a previous podcast, Tim. Ukraine, like the whole of its population, civilian population is armed and training as well. So not only are you fighting against the United States military and the allies nearby who might throw in some guns and some weapons and things like that, but you're also fighting every person on the street. It's it's virtually impossible. Like no, no occupation in modern history has worked that way. You can't occupy yeah. a country and try to take over its economy and its people. Unless, unless it's under a dictatorship and everybody wants out from under that, you know, correct that steel curtain, which is and some of that is and some of that is, uh, well, not to that point, but some of the people in the Ukraine are pro Russia, too. Mm-hmm. So then there's some of that. But I think the majority of those people enjoy their sovereignty and they're not under a dictatorship. And they're yeah. kind of like, we have a good economy. We've got a good thing going here. Let's just keep it going in this direction. And you got this behemoth neighbor to the north who is like, oh, we're going to come in and. And, and toss you around like a rag doll. Yeah. And, and Russia has done this a couple years back. There were some non-uniformed soldiers in the Ukraine as well. Mm-hmm. And they all knew they were Russians and they didn't call themselves Russians. They weren't wearing the Russian patch. They were just like militias. And it was like, eh, but who are they really? Uh, and Russia invaded Georgia a number of years back too, which is another neighbor to the South uh, that also used to be, I think a, a Soviet bloc nation. So this kind of stuff goes on. And, uh, you know, you can go on YouTube and look at the the history of how nations have changed. And somebody made a video. It shows like the Nazi expansion through Europe and Africa. And, you know, the map turns red and then it shrinks back down in 1945 and becomes its own little countries again. And you can see this going back for thousands of years. The Roman Empire took mm-hmm. over 
you know, Europe and parts of the Middle East. Um, the the British Empire used to be just massive, and it's it's not as significant as it used to be. Mm-hmm. But this kind of stuff has happened throughout history. I think what's happening right now is that you have these economies and political borders that are that are formed by alliances, and that's what happens when somebody comes into my neighborhood and tries to take over my neighbor's house. Guess what? I'm going to help my neighbor fight. Right? Mm-hmm. It's that's kind of what's going on right now. Uh, what I, I I forget the timeline. I think it was uh, the first President Bush made an agreement uh, with the Soviets then that they would not pursue Ukraine as a NATO member. Uh, Ukraine has has been for a while now a NATO ally, yep. um, essentially saying, hey, if if something were to happen and you did need assistance, we'll, we'll be there for you. Uh, you know, you're not necessarily needed to join NATO, though. Um, so with the continuing push to have Ukraine join, that seemed to be the the you know poking of the bear that got Russia stirred up. I, I don't necessarily personally understand uh, what the push is to get NATO to or to get Ukraine into NATO. Um, I, I think we're we're again it's a it's a bad set of posturing. Right. It, it, it if cooler heads do not prevail, it's only going to lead to uh, drastic results for both uh, countries. Yeah. So let's let's jump into the next article. Yep. It's it's yep. along the same lines. There, the U.S. approved support deal with Taiwan for Patriot missiles. Uh, so the Biden administration has approved one hundred million dollars. Uh, of a support contract with Taiwan aimed at boosting the island's missile defense systems. Uh, If you've been paying attention to uh, the news, we know that Taiwan and China, uh, China claims that Taiwan uh, is is China property and and needs to come under the mainland. Uh, Taiwan enjoys its own sovereignty. And again, with, you know, big bad China in the area, the U S likes to have an ally right there geographically, other than Japan. Um, But a a China-U.S. relations and and peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait is something that both countries um, kind of bicker back and forth on. This is is not, again, just not great. You know, we can't say that, you know, China has 100,000 soldiers on the Taiwan border, um, but there's been posturing back and forth with, with China and Taiwan now for some time. And us making this deal at this time, it's again not great timing, not a good look. It's it's one of those things where I just go, man. I yeah. think I think I wish it could be done better. Uh, it 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 just it blows my mind. Like we get out of Afghanistan, and now we're talking about like we, we were in our 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 nation's longest conflict, right? And then mm-hmm. and now we're talking about war with two superpowers, two other superpowers. I don't know yeah. if they call Russia a superpower. China is. Uh, I, I think I think Russia's considered that next tier down. I okay. think it's us in China, I, I, and then it's a, a group of, of countries all, just below right. us. All, all nuclear-enabled, which is terrifying. Mm-hmm. That's yes. that's what terrifies me. The, the ground conflict doesn't terrify me. I mean, it, obviously, that's scary, and it's destructive, and people die, and, mm-hmm. and, and people get hurt. But the nuclear stuff terrifies me that somebody pushes the button, and that's that. Because yeah. one-one goes up, it's all going up. And... Right. That's all she wrote. Um this article talks about how U.S. arms sales to Taiwan seriously undermine China's sovereignty and security interests and seriously damage the China-U.S. relations, which I would agree with the China-U.S. relations. But I don't think it undermines China's sovereignty and security interests because I don't think Taiwan is the one saying, hey, China, we're going to come fight you. Yeah, China has been flying the fighter jets over Ty- you know, Taiwanese airspace recently. Right. 
I think kind of you know the, the, them poking that bear themselves. Yeah, it's the the alternate would be true. If we were giving weapons to China, then you're seriously threatening Taiwan. But but I think the you know back to the conversation about Russia and the Ukraine. Uh, one of the things that I saw in the news was that Russia is afraid that if the Ukraine joins the the NATO, then that'd be a staging place to put missiles and stuff like that mm-hmm. to invade Russia. I'm like, I don't think anybody's talking about coming after you, Russia. Like, I don't think that that's unless that's in some war game that they're presenting. I don't think anybody would be supportive of a, an invasion of Russia or China. Right. Yeah. And it's, I don't think it's ever been a topic of, of anything, just like I don't think anybody's talking about let's go invade the United States. You know, do we need security? Certainly. Uh, was it, terrifying when the russians put or the soviets rather put nuclear missiles try to put nuclear missiles in cuba absolutely that was during mm-hmm. the height of the cold war where we were all pushing nukes at each other right but that's not maybe it's happening on a different level i, I don't think by putting anti-aircraft weapons on taiwan that really anything is threatened because missiles can travel a lot further than just being in your neighbor's yard i mean mm-hmm. we can we can launch these things from the other side of the world and effectively you know put a bomb in somebody's lap from thousands of miles away so it's it's posturing it's proxy wars it's posturing it's who's the biggest baddest dude on the block and it's terror it's terrifying it's terrifying for the generation of up-and-coming kids that might have to fight a conflict like this against an equally well-armed uh and prepared and financed military Mm -hmm. uh the united states has not gone toe-to-toe with such a thing for 70 some odd years now yeah i mean we were not fighting well-armed militaries in Desert Storm or Vietnam. Uh, Vietnam was a different story, a whole different type of conflict, guerrilla warfare. But you weren't fighting uniformed factions that were also operating, you know, at the same level of technology and and finance as you were. Uh, it can be argued that the that the, the the North Vietnamese had Russian backing or Soviet backing rather, and that, so they were flying around MiGs, which were really good airplanes. But uh, before that, it was Germany and and Japan. You know, that was yeah. the last time we had a an equally probably stagnant type of fighting where we were equally matched. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think both of those articles just kind of highlight some uh, questionable decision-making and timing is a little rough. I it's think scary. It's, uh, it's, it's very bad. Uh, I, you know, I feel bad for the uh, individual that might've just joined, you know, six months ago. Uh, you know, like, oh, I'm coming in on a peacetime. I'm Wars gonna, are over. I'm yeah. going to do, I'm going to do my four five, six years. I'm going to get my college money and I'm going to jump into the civilian sector after doing, you know, my, my time in the military and getting a degree and I'll be the, 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 the employee everybody's going to be looking for. And now you're like, good golly, I might be headed to China. I might be right. headed to Ukraine. This is not good. Right. So, um, um, real quick, yeah. I wanted to bring up some stats. We were talking about the, the article that talked about how do you leave your first job? How do you explain okay. that to people? And some stats that I had, if you Google the LinkedIn veteran opportunity report, this was a study they did with a handful of partners back in 2019, uh, call of duty endowment, zip recruiter, mm-hmm. LinkedIn, a handful of other partners put some data together. And when we talk about the stats of people leaving their first job, and this is something that I've, I've had to engage with, uh, with hiring managers and employers alike, they're like, well, don't veterans leave their first job? Why should we hire them? My argument is by statistics, they leave their first job, but they're it's not because they plugged into the right job. They leave their first job. If I am an E7 in the Marine Corps and I have a bachelor's degree or a master's degree and I get out of the military and the first thing I can find is pumping gas at the gas station down the street, guess what? As soon as the better thing comes along, I'm going to leave my job, which makes me another statistic. I'm going to stay there as long it's as the, I need to. It's the underemployment. Right. 
It's the underemployment. So with this study, the Call of Duty Endowment and ZipRecruiter study found that 33% of veterans are underemployed in the mm. first place. So veteran unemployment sits somewhere around three and a half percent right now nationally, which is a real it's a pretty good number. That's not a bad number. Uh, underemployment, according to their numbers, is 33 percent, which means that most of us who have served or not most of us, but 33 percent of us who have served in the military are underemployed. We're not being paid or equipped the way that we should be properly based on our experience or education level. Um, veterans are 15.6 percent more likely to be underemployed than non-veterans. And so when I approach this with hiring managers, I talk about, there's another stat here, 70% of veterans are more likely than non-veterans to take a step back in seniority in their jobs. So all of those things combined, toxic workplace, finding where you fit, hanging up the uniform and getting into your first job, it plays into this number that you are probably or statistically 33% underemployed uh, or that 70% of you have taken a step back in seniority and that's another answer why somebody might ask you or when somebody asks you why you left your first job so quick. Well, I was underutilized there. I was underemployed. And it goes back into that conversation about how we make money and what our compensation looks like and things like that. All of the other nuts and bolts that Tim explained, that's where those things play in. But it's important and healthy to understand that a lot of people leave the military and plug into their first job and it's not appropriate for them, which is what supplements that statistic that people leave the military very quickly. I'm sorry, people leave their first jobs after the military very quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, real quick, before we get out of here, we had another article pulled up. I'm just going to kind of hit it real quick. But uh, if you don't know of Jack Reacher, Jack Reacher is a set of novels written by Lee Childs. Uh, there were some movies made of Jack Reacher. There is now a I guess it's considered still television series, uh, but it is on Prime Video. Uh, three days after the show has uh, began to air on Prime Video, it is already set for its second season. Uh, they renewed the Reacher contract and has become one of the best viewed, uh, one of the most viewed shows on Prime Video. Uh, Prime Video is available in 240 countries and territories worldwide. So uh, it shows that this, this, individual this character has a, a a wide wide reach uh i will say that um they have another show on there it is the uh jack ryan jack with, ryan uh, with, uh, who is john krasinski from the, yeah, office. From the office yep yeah uh, i i love that show i know that uh reacher is on my to-do list we'll say uh for for viewing pleasures uh, i want to get into this at some point um, i'm familiar with the character uh but it's good to hear that the show is receiving uh, this sort of feedback and it's this popular early on. I, I binged it. I don't okay. often have time to binge anything, but I binged it one night when I think my family was just doing something else. So I watched it. Uh, if you're familiar with the, the, the Jack Reacher series of movies that Tom Cruise starred in, it's the same type of character. It's the same guy, same based on the same books, but it has some, um, some, some mindless violence, but it's like the good guy against the, the stereotypical bad guys. And that's, what's fun about it is that Jack Reacher doesn't follow the rules. And uh, he is enforcer. He's an enforcer. He's, he enforces among the bad guys where sometimes the police can't. So it's uh, <laughs> it is a great uh, it's a great series to pick up. Uh, it's, it's highly entertaining. Yeah, absolutely. So with all that being said, thank you so much for checking us out again. If you didn't check out last week's episode with uh, Stu Scheller, go go find that. Go check that out. Uh, you can find us on all the major social media platforms as well as podcast platforms. We appreciate you guys for listening. Tell a friend, tell a relative, tell your neighbor. 
Let them know where you heard us. We'll check you out next week right back here on Beyond the Wire.